Neil Modi. <laughs> what a way to start the episode. <laughs> hey, Chris, why don't you record our intro today and explain what the job of our podcast is as part of that? Record our intro and explain what the job of our podcast is? Yeah, why are we doing this? Just explain We're, it. Well, I'm doing this to learn, to open yes. my mind, to... Uh, so, anyway... Come on, let, come let on me, do it as a we thing, right? Not a... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, welcome everyone to the Market Meditations podcast featuring Neil Modi and Chris Heidel, two guys who are trying to figure this world out, especially when things are changing as astonishingly fast as they are today. Keeping an open mind and asking questions and really looking through the veil of monetary policy and the way things appear to try to find deeper truths. That's what I'm doing. How about you, Neil? <laughs> I, I, I thought about it differently, but with the same words. Um, <laughs> or, or sorry, with different words with the same meaning. Um, I'm going to say that to my wife next time we have an argument. I was thinking just that with different words. <laughs> and, and that's a tip you can take home to be a better human being. That will also make you a better investor. What to say to your wife to avoid the argument. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yes. And I guess you're right. The ultimate goal is to become a better investor and a better person. Right. Yes. I, I think becoming a better person makes you a better investor. Person. Um, yes, yes, yes. One of the things I've learned from you and I've learned over the years, because um, as you remember, <laughs> you knew me before I started uh, investing in any real company. I guess I'd done some angel investments, but was a lot about process. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about how some of the questions I ask you have been very tough to answer because, you know, your process is always evolving the amount of information you're reading is changing your newest conclusions. Um, and I'm kind of wondering a little bit if you could start to share a little bit of your value thesis out loud. Because um, I think we, we should probably explore the evolution of a thesis a little more on our podcasts. Yeah. Well, there are many ways to approach value, obviously, right? Some of the parts, um, I think I'm still learning, Neil. Um, I have no doubt about that. This is the path of mastery. This is not yeah, uh, Yeah, yeah. Always trying to take um, an uncritical eye to what value is. I used to have, I guess I've grown out of being what I used to call concrete bound where um, we really, uh, my focus was looking for, you know, beaten down companies, names that were clearly in value territory. The old Ben Graham style of investing in net nets, where companies are trading below the value of cash they had on the balance sheet. By the way, those might come back. So. <laughs> yeah, good old, good old Ben's going to make a revisit to your portfolio yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's... Those are good, safe ways to invest. But venturing out um, more uh, is a 
challenge for the imagination, you know, um, how, how do you, how do you uh, see value? How do you assess value? I mean, this is something too I'm learning from you, Neil, you know, with uh, the way you've thought about um, patent portfolios, intellectual property, um, and other applications of the same technology to unlock value has been really um, something I've tried to borrow and um, a template to overlay onto the public securities markets as well. Wow, I don't even know what to say. What, what do you... I, um, hmm. Can you give any example of that, even though I'm just trying to get to more of the essence of your, your thesis? Just to validate me, could you get to, <laughs> to <laughs> an example of how you've overlaid a little bit of, you know, the Zoic methodology or my methodology here? Well, um, one one way, <clears throat> which is kind of a combination of the two, is um, looking at the the dramatic improvements in the oil drilling industry with fracking, um, directional drilling, and all of those um, advances that led the U.S. to become the number one oil producer in 2018 over Saudi Arabia and Russia, two very low-cost producers. And I'm not saying the shale patch is the lowest cost of production, but it was truly unimaginable 10 years ago how much um, – of that resource, oil and natural gas, liquids and solids would be released um, and produced in the U.S. Um, when we had been thought to be well past our peak. But anyway, um, you know, I've been because of central bank uh, policies around the world, <clears throat> pretty much uh, bullish on precious metals. And <clears throat> about seven years ago or so, we started to see the application of those technologies, um, directional drilling, etc to core samples and to making the mining industry uh, much more productive and lower cost. And I thought that was a huge bullish signal. So that was the, you know, kind of way of taking um, an application in one space and seeing how it would affect industries in other areas, in this case, mining from oil drilling and production and exploration into um, something, I mean, closely related geologically but uh, very different. And the effect that would have on cost and cash flows was tremendous and still is. The industry, the mining industry is reaping the benefits of those advances. So it's kind of looking under the hood. It's one example of seeing something going forward. And of course, the gold mining industry reported record cash flows last year, generally speaking, at a lower realized gold price than we're seeing this year. So, um, there's bullishness built into that thesis as well. So you, you are looking, okay, that's interesting. So you are, um, you're looking, okay. That, that makes more sense to me about how you're applying for it. It's not like you're trying to apply it the exact way we are, but it's giving you another vector to, in which to analyze. Um, yeah, that's right. Opportunity. That's right. Um, <clears throat> take, could, could you, I mean, and it's okay if you're not comfortable, but can you try and start to share the essence of your thesis? Because I know you look at so many things. So, like, how does a value investor like like you look at things to say other than 
you know, it's got a good balance sheet and there's a dislocation in the price. And I followed the management for a while and I read all the footnotes. Other than that stuff and the fact that you're reading a lot, could you share part of your philosophy in a, in a crystallized thought or is, not, is it not able to be done? Yeah, I, I don't know if I can share it in a <clears throat> simple soundbite format. It's a little bit of all of those things. And um, to each of the um, outcomes, you know, we'll attach a certain level of, I'll attach a certain level of confidence to it. I, I guess, um, I don't know, Neil. I mean, right now, you know, things are in such a uh, dislocated state that there's a tremendous amount of value. This is generational, epical in certain ways. And we're seeing it in um, especially a lot of old line industries. Um, you know, I mentioned oil and gas before, but not in this context of being deeply undervalued. Now, the whole energy sector of the S&P 500 index is at around 2.7% of the index. It's never been a smaller percentage because the values of all the um, oil and gas um, producers and exploration companies has sunk to such a low level um, as if they're forgotten. And this is a not unimportant area of the economy. This is a backbone still of our energy grid. Um, over 64% or so of the energy we produce is from hydrocarbons. So um, if you want the lights to come on, you're part of that. <laughs> if you want the computer to work, it's so I, I see that as just really compelling value. Um, it's just one example. And I, I don't know that there's much to um, talk about, except that um, it does align with other things like the strength of the underlying companies, their balance sheets, the, um, and of course, ultimately, um, price, right? <laughs> right. Price, price, price is really um, the most important part of the due diligence. Can I can I retry and sum up your, I guess your model, if not your, since I can't summarize your thesis, it's mm -hmm. a phenomenal historical um, understanding of what happened in the marketplaces. You're always adding to it, but you've got a really good recall and and uh, working understanding of history and the economics in, in history. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's um, a keen study of human nature. Um, it's uh, a lot of specific research, right? So there's, not, there's no shortcut to choosing for you whether you're gonna buy Chevron. It doesn't matter what the price did. You're, if you're gonna buy Chevron, it's gonna include you know, a, lot of, a lot of research. Yeah. Um, yeah. Analysis of all of that research and then making sure the value matches where you want to hit it. Mm -hmm. is, is that, is there, are there other things kind of we're missing in your model? No, it's fair. I think um, what I try to do in terms of process is um, avoid as much distraction as I can. This is uh, very difficult now. Um, but for example, you know, even looking at um, dividends or income can create a distraction. You know, we've been looking in the oil patch lately um, for value-based ideas and 
um, undervalued names, and it's just there's so many. But uh, even companies like ExxonMobil, um, Chevron, of course, um, have have high dividends. And I found myself being um, unduly swayed by the income that can be produced because it's nice to get paid while you wait for your thesis to bear fruit, right? <laughs> you know, just sit there in a corner waiting for something to unfold while you can get a stream of income. So I've, I've uh, but I use that as a sort of microcosm of an example, you know, looking at a lot of um, <clears throat> analyst research and reports and other opinions can definitely influence the way you think about a company, even the very price at which it's trading. So when I see something that comes across my screen, I try to um, really get an assessment of what I think the value inherent in each of the moving parts of the company is, um, and then assign a price at which I'd be willing to buy it, lastly comparing that to the publicly traded price so, or setting a target. So you know, you, you tell me that at some point in your practice, you think that and this is a, a bunch of podcasts ago, there's a chance that 80% of what you buy and sell for your clients could be private. Does that mean you're going to move into like more esoteric asset classes? Are you going to look for more? Um, I, I remember a text between you, me, and, and Roger Kumar recently um, where I suggested junkyards were probably a good business um, that might be recession-proof. And I think both of you laughed and agreed it might be an interesting, um, or salvage yards were, would be. Are you going to mm -hmm. start to buy more of the potential cash flow businesses over time? How do you, how does that, like, how do you even start to think about that problem? Because let's say 80% of what you're in today is public markets, right? Is that fair? Or is it higher? 90%? Yeah, that's fair. We'll include commodities yeah, of that too. 80, 80, yeah, probably about 80%. So, so how do you how do you reverse how do you inverse that and still have the same level of success and happiness about coming to work? Um, I don't know, Neil. That's a question I don't know the answer to. I think it's um, really about finding um, the the most investable ideas, you know, and and with experience being. Uh, confident enough and constructive enough to concentrate on the best ideas. So, you know, I'm not trying to run a portfolio where we have 50 names or even um, 30 names is a lot. You know, what do I have? Do I have room for my 30th best idea? Probably doesn't make the most sense. You want to concentrate on the things you feel um, the most constructive on and the, have the highest confidence. In. So who would you go to out in the world or where would you start reading in the world if you wanted to start to think about this problem or the one I started with, which was, you know, thesis evolution for investors? Where is it you begin to explore that idea? Um, well, there's so much. Yeah. So I'm just many. saying, where do you begin? Right, Because, you know, the 80-20 inverse is really interesting. That's obviously, an in, you know, uh, an evolution of the thesis yeah. and your belief yeah. about market you know public markets becoming more inefficient is what that tells me um yeah well and there's a there's you know nothing stays the same the the speed at which this market correction occurred and the subsequent recovery from the lows um has occurred has been so astonishing i mean everything neil 
I can't even really tell you what happened in February anymore. And here we are just in April. It seems a lifetime ago with all the changes that have happened. But one of the big changes, of course, in the public markets over the last year, and especially more recently, has been this kind of resurgence of, of uh, value. Um, that, um, that seems to argue that there are going to be more candidates. Uh, I guess let me say it this way. The opportunity set for investing in the public markets is now growing again pretty rapidly. Um, the opportunity set in the private sphere has always been large, especially since the dot-com bust, you know, where we've seen private equity and um, venture capital take um, a larger and larger swaths of the uh, investment universe um, to the point where companies don't need to IPO in the standard three to four years that was um, the old century way of doing things. Um, they can stay private for 10, 12 years indefinitely if they can sustain themselves. And so, you know, I guess it really is, to me, not necessarily about public or private, just finding those best ideas. But the public markets are now serving up some really tremendous values. So, you, okay, so public markets for now. Okay. Um, I, I'm curious, let, let's try and just, let's just try and answer the question for people who are um, thinking about their own internal thesis, you know, just as, you know, I, I think a lot of our audience probably is not other sophisticated uh, investors yet, because um, we're still early enough in our, our life cycle that it's probably uh, likely to be our a potential LPs and um, your potential mm -hmm. clients, right? Um, yeah. And our existing so, LPs and clients. Yeah. Yeah. So you're asking what books should someone read? No, to... even just where, where they should start their own research to come up with their own idea. When I meet a new angel investor and somebody says, hey, I want to start investing, what advice do you have? And I say, uh, come up with a process, come up with a, a focus, mm -hmm. um, spend the time to really know why in a specific segment, even if that's Bitcoin, um, something I'm not so bullish on. Um, right. Uh, you, you know, j just make sure you have, you know, an asymmetry of information. Some of that's just constant study. Make sure you're running with other big investors in the space. So you have some idea of what they're doing and make sure you have a process that you spent a lot of time to think through and process that you spent a lot of time to think through doesn't happen in a weekend, no matter how great or how many neurons you're, you're going to spend, how many great, how great your, pro your thinking is or um, how many neurons you can spend in that weekend. Mm -hmm. Meaning that I think mm -hmm. even if you could use 80% of the capacity of your brain, I don't think you're going to have all the, the answers then. Um, or 100% of the capacity. Um, if, I, if I asked you over dinner, I think, you, and, I, and, I, and we just finished a silent retreat, um, which is maybe some of the best time to talk to and the worst, because I don't really want to talk, but... <laughs> you want to conserve the energy you built up. Yeah, right? but bad. I'm always curious in what's your what's in your brain afterwards too. So it's it's so bittersweet to start talking in the car after a silent retreat with you. Um, mm -hmm. You might tell me you were going to read uh, a certain treatise by a certain Buddhist, and I I don't have a specific name here. And you might tell me you're going to go read uh, an economist who a French economist who gave this some thought in the 1800s. Could you share those names with us and specific suggestions? 
Well, among the French economists, you know, Bastiat was uh, one of the greatest, and Jacques Ruff, too, in the last century, was a, R-E-U-F-F, was a, a wonderful economist. Um, but I'd say from the standpoint of investing, there are... Um, you forgot the Buddhist treatise for us. Oh, the, the Buddhist treatise? Something. I mean, you, you tell me about these different things you read occasionally, and I kind of feel like they must influence um, some of your openness, and they seem to. Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, among the Buddhist sutras, there are so many great ones. And, the, um, of course, the Heart Sutra, um, all about letting go, it's a very important one. <laughs> but in in uh, in this space, I don't know. I always think of uh, the Manimanakaja Sutra, where the Buddha says, um, "This is like this because that is like that." <laughs> this <laughs> right, very very simple, very simple. Like, uh, but but penetrating because. Everything has its cause and effect, and everything manifests for a reason. And um, it it forces one, if you if you meditate on that, to look into not the way things appear, but into their causes and conditions, which help things to manifest. Right? I see a lot of fear right now in the in the world, of course, because we don't know the course that this coronavirus will take. Um, Countries like Singapore that thought they had a handle on it, as we talked about last time, have seen a spike in recurrent cases. So they've had a second wave, and that brings a little bit of fear with it. It seems in some ways we have optimism. We're flattening the curve, it's so it seems. But will we have another wave? We just don't know. And um, I think, um, you know, if we really do look deeply at this, the, the future is something we manifest that through our actions, both individually and then ultimately collectively, we bring about, it doesn't just happen. So um, this is just a, a talk on mindfulness, I guess, right now, about uh, making sure that we're coordinating our efforts to do our very best to knock this virus out in this case. But when I think about investing, Neil, I think about what are the causes and conditions that led a specific company or an investment idea to reside where it is today? What are the causes and conditions which will um, signify a change? As Virgil wrote in the Aeneid, many have fallen which were once in honor, and many shall rise that were once fallen, right? So things will change. And I'm always trying to think about that. If I were to think about an investment book that, um, had a great impact on me. Of course, uh, the writings of Ben Grams are there, the intelligent investor, which Warren Buffett talks about. That's, a, a, that's a tough read. Uh, it is a little it's, bit um, yeah. plotting. plotting. Yeah. I would say a better book may be The Mind of Wall Street, which was uh, Leon Levy, one of the founders of Oppenheimer. Company. We will add that to our Wonderful. show notes. Pretty pleased, Chad. Yeah, The Mind of Wall Street. It's a fantastic book, a little slim volume. Um, um, Nassim Taleb's, of course, uh, Fooled right. by Randomness, the gem of a book which everyone is familiar with, though 
his black swan seems to take the sales prize. Um, uh, Michael Malbasan's Think Twice, and just the ways, um, thinking about the ways in which um, our perceptions uh, can be mistaken. Um, you know, thinking you might be wrong, being careful, reviewing, building the right um, checklists. Um, you know, fooling ourselves can be some of some of the easiest work in the world. <laughs> As an investor, you have to try very, very hard not to fool yourself or want to believe. Occasionally, right? The richest investors in the world aren't right a lot. They are right at a moment when the market isn't. <laughs> right, right. But they also have a, also concentrate heavily very often in their very best ideas. I mean, Stan Druckenmiller and and George Soros, really, uh, in the quantum fund, Jim Rogers, they had one great idea, and that was, you know, shorting the British pound. And boy, they took it to the nth degree. Um, it moved against them, and they held on, but it made them all um, billionaires and, and centimillionaires. So that, that was really um, one trade, almost like SoftBank. In Alibaba. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the profits of a single trade are propagating an yeah. entire large business, including its uh, follies. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Exactly right. It could have been the curse of one big success, right? There. Now there's t-shirt cannoning your money <laughs> oh, God. to companies oh, God. like WeWork. That, that is the best and worst <laughs> comparison. I, I'm never quite sure what to think of at a basketball game when people are a lot more excited about the free t-shirt than the team playing on the, on the, <laughs> on the floor, right? Like, what did we really come here for? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, this t-shirt cannon is definitely run by, by a song. He's, yeah, blasting that money. And I'm sure you're not surprised at all because you didn't see this coming that WeWork is not paying on any of their rents. <laughs> I, you know, you know what I was surprised I by was, was Staples this week. Yeah. I was very surprised yeah. by that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So switch gears with me just, just for a few minutes um, uh, on, on the update here. Any specific uh, messages you would give to your your clients, your 120 families, um, about how this week went, um, just in general. And, you know, uh, what, what is it that, that they should know from you in un under five or 10 minutes? Well, a few things. First, this was a welcome relief rally from some of the lows. I think that, um, it gives us all a sense of pause and, uh, the ability to take a breath because, uh, two weeks ago, of course, the market was in full panic mode and there was a liquidity crunch. And it's just really amazing, too, to reflect on how quickly things can change. I mean this, even if we're feeling depressed or lonely or sad, um, we really have to know that those emotions, too, will pass, that the cycles of life will go. And in the same way, we'll get through this crisis and the sun will come out. The economy will be different in certain ways, but it will recover. And what we're able to do now, if we are thoughtful and active, is to invest for that future um, when the sun comes back out and we're able to gather together again in groups. I was thinking 
You know, Neil, um, <laughs> I was having a conversation with another analyst, and he's very bullish on the cruise lines. And I couldn't get there. I couldn't. <laughs> Did Imagine. you catch Corona? Oh. <laughs> Your thought there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't imagine with the devastation the cruise ship industry's gone through and just the, the stories of, you know, again being aboard a ship again with Again and again and again. Yeah. Well, and just the nature of it. I mean, it's probably the worst place you want to be in a sort of pandemic outbreak, right? With shared food uh, service. <laughs> all the service personnel on the ship, if one of them's infected, I think they all pretty much uh, ride in right. steerage together, then be infected. You know, it's just, a, a, you're just a floating Petri dish. So, but I also have to recognize that there are certain, there are certain industries and certain products that have the most loyal following. And cruising is definitely among them. I talked to an accountant friend of mine, and he can't wait to go cruising again. He was thinking of going in May because the deals wow. are so great. And I said to myself, you are suicidal, my friend. But no, he's ready to go as soon as the doors open. It's really, again, a testament to how um, you know certain... Again, certain industries have just that loyalty. The old Mazda Miata. I've always thought about this too, like um, soda, right? Warren Buffett's a genius in this, buying Coca-Cola. People do not switch from Coca-Cola. They don't switch toothpaste Crest, yeah. either. But, right. People take – and those are interesting because it's not the same with beer. I, I just want you to know right? I, I switch my toothpaste really regularly. Ah, see, you're in a you're in a small minority <laughs> of people who's uh, yeah. Some of those habits are hard to change, but beer drinkers versus say soda drinkers regularly change, or are willing to experiment and try different beers and craft beers, etc. They don't have the same. Um, I never thought about this way, but this is how I think about toothpaste. I, I know this podcast is not about this, but. I, I think there there's different different flavor. This could be a podcast about, <laughs> about Neil's preferences and toothpaste. I, I actually thought about it as you know, this is an opportunity to just try something new, and um, it will teach yeah. me something. <laughs> I may not yeah. like the lesson, but it'll teach me yeah. something. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, again, you know, certain habits are hard to dislodge. I mean, uh, timeshare industry too has a very loyal. Group of timeshare buyers, so, advocates. So you sorry. Making... So the, you kind. Of, I felt like you kind of gave two messages there, but it sounded like there was maybe another two distinct messages you were trying to give. Well, just that um, even the misgivings I have about some industries coming back full bore are probably blended by bias. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you, Neil. No, that was a that was very helpful. That's true. Right? I mean I, I think people are craving community again. You know, this whole idea of Zoom fatigue is hitting now. People are um even psychologists are weighing in that being on a video conference, WebEx or Zoom call is not the same as being together. And so it stimulates certain um hormonal and emotional reactions 
but they're incomplete. It's like unrequited love. (laughs) Not like being in the room with someone where you can see their body language or even, of course, give them a hug or a smile or something that directly impacts them and you see the the response in real flesh and blood uh, human interaction. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Zoom's interesting, right? Speaking of a stock, right? It's Zoomed ahead. I think that's something that'll return back to Earth um, when we return to a more normal economy. But the question of um, will it be a V-shaped, a U-shaped, or L? <laughs> I don't know. Well, but it um, doesn't make sense to try and predict. But I do it. know we'll get. <laughs> yeah, no, not now in the fog of war. Though I'm surprised, Neil, to hear you finally admit that these predictions. <laughs> especially in a time like this where we really are flying in a fog um, should be postponed. Oh, yeah, I, you know, I, so. I, I think the interesting thing about predictions is some of what I thought, and this is good because we'll lead this into the predictions game next. Um, <laughs> I, some of what I thought about the world um, was based on lots of predictions. And I think it's gotten me to take a step back and say, um, how should I actually be looking at things? And does it really matter? Mm-hmm. Right? Most of it doesn't matter. Um, mm. I still find it fun. And I kind of look at our, our predictions now as a prop bet for uh, helping the Danny Barker Foundation. Um, and we will figure out how people can, can, can bet with us and, and choose to donate if they like um, on future podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if you're done with that section, we can go into predi- the prediction portion if you want. We can go into the prediction um, portion. You can drag me kicking and screaming. Come on, you're, you're starting to enjoy this. Yes. <laughs> you beat a dead horse long enough, it might laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Even the dead horse will move. Um, so some of these are, are, are kind of interesting. We, we talked a little bit about startup valuations falling um, before, you know, on the phone and maybe on the podcast. And we talked about percentages. Um, I want to start there. Over the next 24 months, um, and we'll just make it pretty easy again. Do you think that startup valuations would have fallen um, less than 50% or more than 50% on average as we read the National Venture Capital Association report? A year from now. Wait, which which startup valuations? valuations. Neil? That's C. That's oh, startup C valuations. through you well, know they... F, whatever the heck people can raise from venture capital. Uh huh. Uh huh. Do I think that they will fall by fifty percent over yes. the next? So this is a twenty-four months? month prop that you're making. Um, and does that mean that when we arrive at 24 months from now in April of 2020, we will compare that, the previous um, four years of data? Gotcha. So I think, yes, that they will fall and reach a nadir below 50% of uh, current values. But I think there will be a recovery by two years. Oh, well. I was going to say, so... So uh, add caveats. Not here. a full recovery. Okay, so I don't. So I think there'll be the recovery, which will make it so that they don't actually fall by a total of fifty percent. I think we're gonna. So like, I do I think see. we're gonna see stuff that's even more uh, bloodied and bruised than that along the way. Um, but 
I'm going to say, yeah. no, we're not going to so, reach 50% when we look at the 24-month average. So point to point, right? From point A to point B, will it be a 50% decline? No yeah. matter what the path is. So the, the path, I think, includes in some 70% discounts. <laughs> oh, yes. Easily, yes. Um, so wait, were you with me so, or you were, you were against me on that bet? Um, then I'm with you. I think that the um, decline at the end of the two-year window won't be as stark as it's likely to be on the path. So not quite 50%, no. But I still think it'll be so, lower than um, today. You, you made some predictions about uh, federal bailouts at the end of the last episode. Um, and you said that you thought we'd see up to another $3 billion, sorry, billion, so much easier to say than trillion. Uh, dollars worth of of bailouts mm. um, yeah. in the next, that, uh, you know, before December 31st. Do you think that we're going to see um, above three and a half or December 20, 31st of 2020, above three and a half or less than three and a half from the federal government? I think we'll see another two trillion, under three trillion, though. From the federal government by the by December, but I think we'll we'll have even more stimulus so next year. The only reason that gives me pause to even debate it out loud with you is, I think Trump will do whatever he can to win the election, and another trillion dollars mm. worth of stimulus, since he effectively or ineffectively controls the Republicans, is not beyond respite at this moment. So I'm going right. to go over. That's such a fucking crazy... Be- Excuse my okay. French on this podcast. Um, <laughs> advanced... Uh, that's advanced VC talk. talk right? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, so I'm going to go over just, mm-hmm. just because of the, the Trump factor. Gotcha. So, um, okay. Hospital systems... Uh, before December 31st. Mm. So you're, I think you're almost betting on the, the second wave. Is the average hospital system going to need more beds? Not add more beds, going to need more beds because they would have been ill-prepared for the second wave. Mm. And I, well, think, I want to define um, hospital for you. I'm not talking about rural hospitals. I'm talking about the hospitals that you know, uh, we would take Santiago to if some if he you know got bumped on the chin, yeah. right? Um, or that we'd take Riganka to. Most of that's yeah. Most of that's now di- distributed out to uh, outpatient urgent care. Yeah, I don't trust urgent care, but okay. <laughs> They're not all equal. That's true. Um, not all created equal. I think that the second wave will be more prepared for. Um, I don't think yeah, I don't we'll think need so more either. beds. Um, I don't think and so. I don't know how to measure this, but do you think the rise of nationalism is going to go, is, is nationalism going to go up or down worldwide? I have no way to understand how to measure this. Uh, Tanner, maybe you can help us figure that out, but we're going to take a blind bet and let you be the judge on it, <laughs> or an ill-informed bet. I think nationalism is going to go down as a result of the coronavirus. I agree. I think, um, you know, uh, 
John Stewart on The Daily Show would always joke that the only time human beings will come together is when we have an alien invasion. <laughs> that's when we'll join forces and stop the, the petty hatred. I think he's right, and I think this qualifies. I think we will um, come together more. Though there might be a countervailing factor in um, repairing the supply chain because it's, you know, so so much of what coronavirus has exposed is that fragility. Um, you know, there will be more onshoring of the supply chain, which kind of is a little nationalistic. I so, guess. so no, but I still say no. Nationalism is going to retreat. Um, so, so, so Tanner, um, we're both saying no, uh, but you'll have to come up with the rules around this one. <laughs> um, l- last, last kind of qu- question prediction corner here, uh, or the prediction game, um, is: Do you think we've seen the bottom of the market for the year? No. Okay, my follow-up question is, how far away are we from the bottom of the market? Farther than we were Monday. <laughs> You're so helpful on these answers. No, I would say, um, again, Neil, you know, the uh, past patterns <clears throat> suggest at least a 50% decline from the peak to trough. So I think we're still 28% or so from any reasonable estimate of a bottom. Um, And again, remember, going into this, there was already a a slowdown globally that was taking hold. And in many industries, um, we were starting to see it. Um, Even in China, there was a dramatic slowdown before COVID. Um, So yeah, no, I think that... um, so That's my, what's my instinct uh, agrees with you. I think it's probably a couple months from now um, when the bottom finally hits. But it, it, it's against yeah. the logic. And I, I think this is part of the reason that um, I love James Andrews' music in the beginning of the podcast. And I love the cover of our podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, you like that big time stuff, but we're a bunch of Buddhists covered in money for the cover of our logo. I think being an investor <laughs> is a little bit about um, trying to understand contradictions within ourselves and within the world. Mm-hmm. But I thought peak fear would be mm-hmm. around mid-April um, for the United States. Um, I think peak fear might have been end of March, beginning of April. I don't know that we're gonna, it's going to get worse. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right in the general public and uh, with concerns about the healthcare crisis, um, which had a very direct effect on the financial markets. But I think the the job losses, the ugly numbers, the basic stoppage of uh, the economy is going to keep hitting the the numbers going forward. Now, it's possible that I'm wrong. Psychologically, people might just say, well, that was coronavirus. You know, all the managements are going to kitchen sink all their expenses and their bad mergers and their misguided uh, <laughs> expenditures under the coronavirus no, no, no. headline. Everybody's had a everything. bad boyfriend or girlfriend. You're a little more wary the next time out. And we will be with coronavirus. That's human nature. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, but I'm saying, you know, we haven't even begun to peek at the, um, the financial numbers. 
what this has done to earnings. So you do think it'll take a, to... another month or two or three to actually start to sort through that. And as people see that better, then they may react worse. Yeah. And again, I think they go together. There's a corollary, right? If we see um, the rates of infection dropping dramatically, it gives people hope that the economy will recover and return soon. And they can maybe look past But at some the point, don't numbers. we have to pay the if, piper for all of the overinflated stock prices we've been building for the last 14 years? Yeah, well, how do we pay the piper, Neil? That's Doesn't a great question. Doesn't have to be a level set I'm again? Becoming... Like, it seems to me like what goes up must come down, right? And it needs to, it needs to level back out. Uh -huh. But I don't really know enough about economics to understand what should actually happen versus what is going to happen. Well, none of us know what is um, going to happen for sure. I can surmise, though, that this will be a huge inflationary episode. And it's very possible that stock prices, home prices keep going up, um, except for the value of the dollar, the purchasing power of the dollar, and, and most other currencies, too, along with it, go down. Um, people have asked me why I think that. And I have been thinking about inflation for a long time, um, even in this deflationary backdrop. But asset prices have inflated, for sure. Um, but I think this is a different ballgame. In the last two cycles, um, the problems were in the financial plumbing. They were in the financial system, specifically. This is an external shock. Um, it's a demand shock, a big one. And um, I think the response of the government, and it might be the right thing, but it's to put money directly in the hands of small business owners and consumers. And I think the previous stimulus has wound up basically trapped in stagnant pools inside the financial system, especially in the form of excess reserves on the balance sheet at the Fed. So they've given money, bailout money directly to banks in prior crises, and that money's just basically stayed on loan at the reserve, uh, the Federal Reserve, earning interest on excess reserves. So banks have just, they haven't had to do anything. And um, they certainly have retreated from lending, commercial and industrial loans, um, even mortgages. Um, the vast majority are now um, publicly traded companies that are investor sponsored generating new mortgage uh, new mortgage lending. So anyway, I would say that because this money is going outside of the, this new money being created, printed out of thin air and uh, issued, is going directly into the real economy, not to the financial economy. It's going to be inflationary. So, I, I, you know, I, I actually predict that this is sort of the sort of one of the obvious tipping points to the United States looking a little more like a third world country. Um, I'm kind of curious whether you agree or disagree, and I'll give you some of the data that makes me think some of it. Um, going to, to visit my relatives in Kenya as a kid, everybody could afford a driver, right? Because it was so inexpensive. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a driver. Suddenly mm -hmm. Uber came out and they, they figured out how to, how to have me afford a driver to the airport every time I wanted to go, right? 
and on demand, uh -huh. right? Tr mm -hmm. Truly, that's about the same time it took mm -hmm. to get a driver in Kenya if they worked for you. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't so right, instant. Right. <laughs> Ten or fifteen minutes, somebody's ready to go. You're standing on the curb waiting for Randolph to come from the family Something, yeah. garage. Um, yeah. Then you know, in Seattle, the rise of the homeless has been really interesting to watch. It used to be that you could walk down mm. Seattle and it um, looked like the the epitome of, of like growth and perfection in every corner you looked, you know, art galleries and tech companies and uh, just a bustling good economy. Now when I walk down the streets, I see a lot mm -hmm. of that same stuff, but I definitely see a lot more eviction notices and I also see a lot of homeless people. And it tells me that the homeless population's growing, right? And I, I have read the numbers, the homeless population's growing. We're dealing more poorly with it. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if yeah. coronavirus isn't a larger tipping point to um, more people becoming more homeless and us moving more to a third world country. Yeah. yeah. Some of the features well, and effects I of think a third world country, cheap labor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think inexorably we all move in that um, direction. I mean, I'm, you and I, Neil, are not the first people to have um, thought of an economy or a country or the growth of a nation in uh, morphological terms, you know, from its birth to adolescence to maturity, decline and death, kind of in alignment with the human life. And I think, you know, it's been written in history. Every great empire has had its peak and then decline. Um, some have managed it very stoically, like I have mentioned Japan before. They've been uh, just remarkable the way that the Japanese public has managed the decline. A lot of it is uh, beyond the control of any one person. It's a, you know, uh, demographic change um, versus, say, France. <laughs> but they've always protested on the streets of France. Uh, and, the and hopefully they Paris. always do. But I, <laughs> yes, I'm with you 100%. Hopefully they always bring the tractors out when needed. The um, but the other thing is, uh, I I think that ultimately that comes to the U.S. and what is uh, when is the U.S. past its peak? And I don't know. I mean, there have been predictions about that since time immemorial, since the 1920s with Spangler and the decline of the West and um, you know, the Great Depression brought out a lot of uh, doomsayers and, of course, two world wars. But um, In today's terms, do you think you'll have a yeah, driver for, you know, under $300 to today's dollars, you know, I, adjusted for 15 years from now? Do you think you're likely to have a driver for, you know, 300 bucks a month? Well, I think one of the underpinnings of a strong... Um, economy a strong nation is the soundness of its currency and we've certainly given that up so i would agree with you i think the standard of living in the u.s is certainly um, from here most likely um, to decline more rapidly than it has um, i don't know what that means for the public response uh, public policy response i mean you know part of the reason we had a homeless crisis um, the genesis of which was in the 1980s when um, the federal government restricted 
payments for uh, mental health care. And so a lot of those patients were thrown onto the streets and that has only grown as we've, you know, um, eviscerated the manufacturing economy in the U.S., offshored the labor. Um, I think there will be some onshoring of labor, which may support um, some rise again. I think, too, there will be stimulus packages, which have um, infrastructure bills and um, work programs to get uh, Americans back to working again. Again, these will be direct payments from the federal government, like the Works Progress Administration was in the 30s. Again, I think these are all inflationary, but ultimately um, will be balanced somewhat by a, a, a more decent standard of living for a lot of Americans. Um, so I, I don't know, Neil. I guess the decline will be here, but still I think it won't be too abrupt a change. It won't be like Venezuela or Argentina. Well, yeah, that's why I said. So, do you think 15 years from now you're likely to have a driver um, for $300 of today's dollars a month? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's interesting because I actually think our, oddly, most of the people listening to, or all the people listening, I think our retirement's likely to be better, as you know, in an odd way in terms mm -hmm. of quality of life. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because. Uh, I do like that you mentioned our our avatar <laughs> for the podcast, a Buddha covered in money, and I think it's a, important to pierce the monetary veil because I think the inexorable um, rise of production, expansion, the progress basically is um, to lower cost, right? Lower cost, increase efficiency. That's what progress is. That is a naturally deflationary force. The reason we have inflation is because we have monetary policies, people playing with the money supply that are idiots <laughs> or don't think through fully what the long-term effects will be of their actions. And of course, it's always, 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 So do you always think we'll political. see universal basic income in 15 years? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I think so too. Interesting. Okay. Uh, the VC corner. Let, let's just go there and spend a couple more minutes and we'll call it an episode for our, our loyal audience that we're so grateful for. One of the things I wanted to mention before we go to the VC corner is if you have questions or, or comments, um, we're probably not going to read Twitter knowing us, so please don't tweet us, uh, but, but drop us a line. Um, you can drop a line to chad at zoetcapital.com and he will make sure we have the comments and we will do our best to answer your questions um, as long as they're not specific about stock picks or <laughs> things like that. But we're happy to, I guess, shoot at ideas that way too. Just uh, uh, keep in mind that um, we'd love to, to hear your comments and questions. Um, the VC corner. Uh, I'm curious as, as you're looking at this, and I, I saw this really interesting survey recently, as you're looking at this, you know, you're looking at it from an LP's perspective um, and you're probably not spending too much time thinking about the, the startup uh, uh, universe. Um, what do you think the, the biggest changes other than valuation people are, are seeing? Uh, 
What are the biggest changes other than valuation? Uh, well, I think there's, it may be too early to ask that question. I mean, there's so many things that have happened um, so quickly, like the availability of credit in the system, for example, which again, directly impacts valuations. Will that flow of credit remain interrupted? Um, will investors still suffer from this recency bias because risk happened very quickly, right? Things were going along, 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 and then bam, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, it didn't seem like it does today. You sound like Emeril Lagasse with that bam. Please keep, feel free to use that uh, bam more regularly. <laughs> He's also from New Orleans, right? <laughs> it's already trademarked. He's, he's from already New Orleans trademarked. too, right? Isn't that a thing between you guys? He's from yeah. Massachusetts, but New Orleans is home. He's he's embraced it like many people have. Um, I um, read this yeah. survey uh, that I found really interesting. That, and this was taken three weeks ago. That eighty percent of the founders in this survey, roughly, said that they thought everything would return to normal by the end of April. And 80% of the VCs thought it would take till the end of 2022. <laughs> there's there's quite, the, quite the disconnect in those numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, the first number you gave, um, the end of April group, were uh, surveys of founders current public and companies. Yeah. Oh, founders. Um, uh-huh. Again, it's rough. I think it was like 70%, but 80% of VCs thought it would take a couple of years to, to recover, um, which mm-hmm. I found just kind mm-hmm. of interesting in general, right? Like how could, how could two groups be so far apart? Well, maybe they're thinking about different things. Founders want to grow their business or get their business back to running normally. VCs are concerned about funding. Yeah, I, I would think so. Well, yeah, VCs are also trying to make sure that the portfolios they have that, you know, the portfolio companies they have that are good, that they're making sure they help along, right? Yeah, because operationally, I think a founder would just want to get back to operating <laughs> as quickly as possible. And VCs are always thinking of, you know, how to unlock more value. In the so, next you know, round, this is so. interesting. We, you, you and I um, definitely have a, a certain love for a certain company that will remain unmentioned today. Um, not, not talking to them, but talking to a lot of founders um, in uh, the Endless Frontier Labs uh, this last session uh, out of CERN NYU. Um, the question I got was, we've put our fundraising on hold. Do you think we should? And how long do you think we should put it on hold for? We're thinking six to nine months. Maybe we'll restart our fundraising efforts next year. We have enough money to take us through that. What's your advice to those founders? Seeing, seeing a, a better, a larger picture than I think um, I do and they do. What's your advice to the, the founders that we've invested in know. together? Yeah, my advice to them Whether in they terms delay, of Delay around or, or go for it right this moment. Clearly there's going to be um, rational actors even in an irrational market who are going to say, Good companies are good. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think it's, it's worth pursuing the funding. If you believe in the idea, um, you know, I, I think, um, 
you might have to lower expectations, <laughs> but I think it's it's fair to pursue that. Um, yeah. yeah, I know a lot of investors are going to be looking for a deal or thinking you might be in some way um, desperate for <laughs> that round. So negotiations might be tougher, but I still think you shouldn't delay it. I mean, when do you restart? It's a question clients ask me about, you know, where's the bottom? I don't know where the bottom is. It's impossible to know. That's the day before things rise and don't look back. And who knows whenever that is. But what you can look to is the value inherent in your investment, your product. That, your that's my advice. Process. I don't think you should stop. Um, if you're stopping, you should stop for a week, yeah. two weeks, you know, regather, take a look at what, what things should be and start again. I don't think you should stop at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's true that in some cases, valuations have changed for real reasons on the ground, you know. Um, but that's the, that's the assessment I think you're suggesting people make and I think um, they should. What things do you think founders should be doing to make cuts and expenses? Here's what I wonder. If you were at a healthy company before with a healthy morale, um, is it really bad to ask everybody to take 80% of their salary right now? Just to extend the salary? Just to extend the, the runway? How bad an idea is that really? Well, given all the preconditions you mentioned, good morale, I don't know if you'll destroy the morale. Yeah, but, 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 <laughs> but you the destroy morale. the morale if you I run out it's... of money, too. There's no, there's no more. Just because I've sworn on this podcast, oh, there's, there's no, no more fucking morale anyway. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I think you're right, Neil. I think that's a, a fair ask. Um, the leaders of the companies, uh, of course, have to lead by example. Possibly taking larger cuts. Yeah, but that's that's probably okay for some of them. But, uh, yeah, and even just yeah, temporarily, yeah. even if you buy yourself a couple that. extra months, that's probably not such a bad thing. No, I agree with that. And that uh, coming out on the other end of it, um, you can probably sweeten some of the compensation for your yeah. loyal employees. Which might make it more palatable. Yeah. Um, I, I don't. So I don't really actually. It's interesting. I you know I don't really believe in all of the salary surveys I see um, for startup companies because it's just not what I've ex what I've experienced. Right. Um, if you go to the largest um, uh, recruiter in the country, they're going to give you a very different price on what the salaries are than what I typically see. So like. Do, do those families have the margin to take that cut? Um, but it's interesting. I, I think I'll probably write to all of my uh, current companies and make some suggestions about it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's probably it from the VC corner today in predictions and current events. We were supposed to have Vivian Ming on today, mm -hmm. but our, our dear Vivian could not make the time because we changed it on her. And we are going to have her on next week. And we're pretty excited to have her and spend some time with her. So we hope you'll tune in. Um, just to remind you, Vivian is a computational neuroscientist, probably one of the top uh, 10 data scientists in uh, the country, um, if not the world. Um, she's an armchair economist, and she really just spends a lot of time trying to get to the bottom of what's causing the problems she's most interested in. Um, and so I really appreciate her thought. If there's anything you'd like us to ask her, please um, 
shoot her a message. She'll, I'm sure she'll bring it for us or um, shoot chad at zoiccapital.com an email and he will also bring it to us. Thanks for joining us today, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that I make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had.